0: Twenty-four and a half years ago, I had the joy of beginning my pastoral preaching ministry here. If you happened to be here that first Sunday that I preached in October of 1994, would you stand, Maxine, oh, Reedes, Pat, Wayne, Dick, were you not here? Dick, you should stand up. Gwen, Jim, Lauren, well, you were just born, you were brought here. I mean, Literally. I'll see. Okay. Great. Please be seated. Well, some of you will remember uh, some things that were a little different here then. Uh, so, for example, the kind of chairs you're sitting in up at the balcony, that's all there was over here. There were those kind of chairs just fixed on the floor of this main West Hall. And these doors had been down for several decades, and so we were just over on this side. Uh, this platform wasn't here, the pulpit was over here, and that balcony wasn't there. There was a choir loft and an organ, uh, and there was nobody sitting in the balcony, uh, and uh, the people who stood up over there were sitting over here. And, uh, but it's interesting that there were also some things that were the same. So we met on Sunday morning, we met here in this place. We sang hymns. I don't remember if we sang, Oh, Worship the King, but that's one of the hymns we might have sung that Sunday. And I preached a sermon. I preached an expositional sermon from Scripture. It was from Mark chapter 1. In that sense, I began the ministry here in the way I meant to continue it, by the preaching of God's Word. There were people more than normal, probably here that first Sunday. Attendance probably dipped the second Sunday. The curiosity seekers moved on. But there were things that were consistent that were there that first Sunday when this preaching ministry began. It's often that way when things happen for the first time. If you're a student and the new teacher turns up, you're looking for hints. What what are things going to be like? You go to a new job, you wonder, what's the atmosphere here? What's the boss like? When a new administration takes over, a new party is in control of the House or the Senate, people watch for what's going to happen. Well, friends, we're in a very significant point in our study in Deuteronomy this morning because we are at the beginning of the conquest of the land. And what we see beginning here is a pattern that we will see throughout the conquest were we to follow the book of Deuteronomy and into Joshua and through Joshua. The long string of victories would begin with the two that Moses is recounting in our passage today in this next section in the opening speech of Deuteronomy. So just to review, Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible Inspired by the Spirit of God as a revelation from God, likely during the long wilderness delay of almost four decades, caused by the disobedience of the generation of the Israelites' parents, of the people he was speaking to at the time, the generation that he had led out of Egypt in the Exodus. So he recounted in Genesis God's creation of the world and the calling of his special people through old Abram and childless Sarah, his promises to make them a great nation, and is beginning to fulfill that promise by giving them a family and bringing them to Canaan. But then, at a point a little bit later, they left Canaan. They headed south to Egypt in order to survive a terrible famine. In the second book, in the book of Exodus, we see that family's descendants become numerous, and they fell into trying circumstances, even terrible, as enslaved people in Egypt for centuries. But in Moses' own generation and by God leading, God had used Moses to bring the Israelites out of their Egyptian bondage by miraculous victories over Pharaoh and his armies. And God led his people into the wilderness of Sinai to take them as His special people, to give them his laws, his Ten Commandments, and to establish the sacrificial system that would teach them of their sin and of their need for forgiveness. Leviticus, the third book, was recalling many of those laws and of the ways Of the priesthood that God would set up and regulate the people's worship of Him through. Numbers then continues on in that same vein. And then in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, and if you have a copy of, if you have your own copy of the Bible with you, why don't you open to Numbers 13 and 14 and just mark it in some way? Because that's that's the big crucial thing in the Pentateuch, in the first five books, where the disaster that derailed that generation from inheriting the land that God had promised to them through their ancestor Abraham, the disaster happens there in Numbers 13 and 14. So when they got to the promised land and sent spies in, almost all of the spies said that the land would be too difficult for them to take. Which just amazes me every time I think of it. I mean, these are the people who had just seen God rearrange the far more powerful nation of Egypt with little help from them. And yet, even with all of these living proofs in their minds' recent memories, they would not trust God for this less surprising victory? Anyway, can you imagine such faithfulness of God being met with such faithlessness on the part of His people? I mean, sadly, I suspect many of us can not imagine that. Then Numbers 15 to 20 are just the wandering decades as the people wander around through the wilderness hill countries in the Sinai Peninsula south of the promised land of Canaan. But then the last Israelite, with a few specific exceptions, Moses, Caleb, Joshua, the last Israelite who had been an adult at the time of the great disobedience, the the horrible God-shaming and defaming untrust, the, the refusal to trust God by going into the promised land, that last Israelite of that generation died And when they died, then God said that it was time for them to now set out once again to the promised land. A kind of four decades later, as I was saying. In Numbers 21, we see God leading them up the lands of the Amorites, the pagan nations just to the east of the Jordan River. And it's the victories that God gave them then that Moses was recounting at the time of Moses giving this four-chapter-long speech at the beginning of Deuteronomy. These victories... We're probably just a few weeks in the past. Recall how Moses began Deuteronomy with a speech recounting the history of God's work with his people. Very much like the prologues of treaties at the time between nations. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan, in the wilderness, in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dishab, it is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them after he had defeated Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived at Ashtaroth and Edri. Beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, you have stayed long enough at this mountain, Turn and take your course and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country and in the lowland and in the Negev and by the seacoast and the land of the Canaanites in Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. Well, Moses then in this first chapter of Deuteronomy goes on to recall their parents' treacherous disobedience when they had been in the same location 38 years earlier. And in the beginning of chapter 2 of Deuteronomy, he recounted what those listening to him knew all too well, that for a generation they had been wandering around the wilderness in a kind of deadly timeout, waiting for the death of the rebellious and faithless generation who had witnessed the great works of God in the Exodus, each one of which stood as a witness against their faithless refusal to enter the promised land. Then there in chapter 2, verse 16, Moses recounts when the electrifying word went out that the last veteran of this treachery had died. And with that death, then the great works of God could continue on. It would be time for them to move, for the victories to begin, for the conquest to commence, for the long-promised land to be inherited and inhabited. And so we come to the two kingdoms of the Amorites, the local pagan peoples. So basically from, from, from the way you guys are looking, if I'm the normal map in the back of your Bible, you've got the Mediterranean Sea, you know you've got the Promised Land, you have the eastern border of the Promised land being the River Jordan. On the other side, which they call the Transjordan, because it's across the Jordan, basically the local peoples are called the Amorites. The local people on the other side are called the Canaanites. but they're basically the people of the land. they're pagan. And they have horrible worship practices of giving their children over to Molech and sacrifice of ritual prostitution as a form of worship for fertility. That's what's going on in the lands there that God is calling them to take. So God calls them then to begin moving up into these two kingdoms of the Amorites over on the east side of the Jordan. The southern kingdom ruled by Sihon in Heshbon, just east of the Dead Sea. And the northern kingdom ruled by Og in Bashan, just east of the Sea of Galilee. So it's a large area, about as large as the land that they're going to conquer west of the promised land in Canaan itself. Very large expanse of land. He leads them into these two kingdoms under these two kings, Sihon and Og. So let's read our passage for this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 26 is where we start. And it goes through 3.11. If you're looking at the Pew Bible, they're laid out quite nicely together there on page 147, Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 26. So I sent messengers from the wilderness of Kedemoth to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, with words of peace, saying, "'Let me pass through your land. I will go only by the road. I will turn aside neither to the right nor to the left. You shall sell me food for money that I may eat, and give me water for money that I may drink.'" Only let me pass through on foot, as the sons of Esau who live in Seir and the Moabites who live in Ard did for me, until I go over the Jordan into the land that the Lord our God is giving to us. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him. For the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to the battle at Jahaz. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people, and we captured all his cities at that time. And devoted to destruction every city. Men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Only the livestock we took as spoil for ourselves with the plunder of the cities that we captured. From Ereur, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley as far as Gilead, which is way up north. There was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, whatever the Lord our God had forbidden us. Then we turned and went up the way to Bashan, and Og, the king of Bashan, came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Edrai. But the Lord said to me, "'Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sihon, the king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon.' So the Lord our God gave into our hand Og also, the king of Bashan, and all his people." And we struck him down until he had no survivor left. And we took all his cities at that time. There was not a city that we did not take from them. Sixty cities. The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. All these were cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. Besides very many unwalled villages. And we devoted them to destruction. As we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon. Devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. But all the livestock and the spoil of the cities we took as our plunder. So... We took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Selica and Edri, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth according to the common cubit. Well, you can simply see by the headings provided that our passage is really in two parts, right? Verses 26 to 37 of chapter 2, the destruction of the Amorites under King Sihon in Heshbon, taking of his land. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11, the destruction of the Amorites under Og, king of Bashan, and taking of his land. So the two accounts are very much alike, but there are also some differences, just to note. For example, in the first verses, in verses uh, 26 to 29, there's that introductory interaction between the Israelites and Sihon uh, that's not repeated in chapter 3 with Og. Maybe there was no time or need for the request because news from the southern Amorite kingdom had reached the northern Amorite kingdom about the utter destruction, and there was nothing really to talk about. So just as the Transjordan in the southeast of the Dead Sea had been cleaned out in judgment by the Israelites, so it seems also the northeast of the Sea of Galilee would have the same fate, and it did. What I want us to notice here is the pattern that we see throughout God's leading His people into the land He had promised to give them. The pattern that we will see again and again. Revelation, judgment, mercy. Revelation, judgment, mercy. Revelation, judgment, mercy mercy. And just so you realize how much you benefit from other members of the congregation, I had a much less memorable five-point outline yesterday that Caleb Morrell looked at and said, you know, it'd be a lot better if you just make it to three points. Revelation, judgment, mercy. I think he was right. He saved you two points today. (laughs) You should thank Caleb. I think this pattern of revelation, judgment, and mercy is a pattern that you'll find in your own life as a Christian as you follow the Lord. Well, it really all begins with revelation. Did you notice that? God revealing himself, his will speaking. Look again at chapter 2, verse 31. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have begun to give Sihon and his land over to you. Begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. And then over in chapter 3, verse 2, the same thing. But the Lord said to me, Do not fear him, for I have given him and all his people and his land into your hand, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites who lived at Heshbon. So both times the Lord promised Moses that he would give the pagan king and his kingdom into his people's hands. And with that guarantee of victory, he gave the command, begin to take possession that you may occupy his land. So the The land that God's people were to occupy was not only across the Jordan, uh, that is uh, from uh, across the Jordan from the Mediterranean. Uh, It was also the place where two and a half of the 12 tribes would settle permanently in this area east of the Jordan. So they were being called to begin the conquest of the promised land to take this from the Amorites. So part of the promised land was what they were now doing before they ever crossed the Jordan and take Jericho. The conquest began by taking these portions east of the Jordan River, where Gad and Manasseh and Reuben would settle. So that was the conquest actually begun. Now about Og, the Lord specifically said there in chapter 3, verse 2, "...do not fear him." Though the Israelites hardly stood any chance in the flesh, they could have confidence because God was with them. "...no obstacle is insurmountable to a sovereign God who has made promises to his people." God declared that this would be the beginning of the conquest of the promised land, and so it would be. When God speaks, he communicates to his people what he will do, and therefore what they should do. So if he was giving Og and Sion, these two kings, into their hands, then they had no reason to fear them or to fear their people, regardless of how outwardly fearsome they may be. Maybe in the north there were some very, very tall people. Maybe the cities were numerous, and maybe they were all very carefully fortified, just like their parents had testified about the cities of Canaan. All of that could be true. But you see, unlike their parents' unbelief, this generation believed God's words about the future. He said he was giving them this land, so then he was, regardless of what their eyes could see. They could steal their hearts with this knowledge, not relying on their own strength, and they could walk ahead without fear. Again, in such striking contrast to their parents' generation, they understood and believed that God was in fact giving them this land. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, God has words to speak to you. But they're not the lies you hear in the mouths of the TV preachers who want your money. The words he would speak to you are unnerving. They are not words of comfort initially. They're words that you were made in his image, but that you have sinned against him and against others. And because he is good, he will hold you accountable. And you will not live forever. And you may not even know ahead of time when you're going to die, when you're going to appear before Him, when you will be called to give an account. And those words are serious, and those words are true. For taking blessings that you were called to be stewards of, to use in His worship, you've instead used them on yourself. You've served yourself first more before everyone else. Why would I say such terrible things about you when I don't even know you personally? Because I know what God has said in his word about me and about every single person on this planet, that we are all made in his image. Therefore, we can't dismiss or demean any person. And yet, the very fact that we're made in God's image is not alone sufficient to say that we are therefore good. Being made in His image invests us with great responsibility, with great ability, with great potential, truly. But, friend, what all of us have done with that is not what we should. It's not that none of us have ever done good things. All of us. Christian, non-Christian, have done good things sometimes. But those good things we've done don't erase the bad things we've done. Those bad things exist eternally in the witness before God. And we know in our own consciences that we have not lived as we should have lived. I wonder if you're aware of the fact that, to use the Bible's word, that you have sinned. Well, God says in His word that you have that everyone has. Do you think those sins are serious? The Bible says that they are. That every single one of them is significant. I wonder if you could put in words, maybe to a Christian friend today, what trouble you think you are in before God. Would you be able to put words to that? I think clearly understanding your situation could be the first step in getting out of that situation. My Christian friends, our lives are different than they would have been had God not spoken. Hearing God in His Word separates us from the people around us today who don't listen to Him. We act in ways they think are strange. So seminaries may be treated as hate groups by Facebook because they don't see the realities that we see. The obediences we offer up to the Lord are like stones in a bridge that we're building to a future that God tells us is there, even if we can't see it with our eyes and flesh. Every obedience is put in place, bridging to this future that to our non Christian friends may look like a, a bridge to nowhere. But we can set out in confidence on the paths of obedience that God points us down, trusting him for the outcome that he has promised. Like the Israelites of old facing opponents, we don't need to fear if we're trusting in the Lord and following his word, his revelation of his will. We can begin to follow the Lord because he has spoken to us. That's why on that Sunday 24 and a half years ago, I began my public ministry here by opening God's word, reading to you from God's word, teaching you from God's word, because it all begins with revelation. It all begins not with the clever people in that church getting together and coming up with some ideas of how to live life, but people being arrested by the God who made them, speaking to them, telling us things we would not make up, we would not have thought of on our own. It all begins with revelation. But we should move on to the main burden of our passage, and that is the judgment of God. This would be the second point, the judgment of God. As I said, these were the Amorites who were opposing God by opposing God's people. Four centuries before, God had told Abram that the Amorites' sins were, to use the phrase he uses in Genesis 15-16, their sins were not yet complete. That's an idea, isn't it? That God would, for his own inscrutable reasons, withhold visible judgment on them, until it would be particularly demonstrative of His holiness and of the heinousness of their sins. Quite an idea that there is a determined limit to the patience of God, isn't it? But it is God's business to forgive, said the philosopher on his deathbed. Friends, it's not God's business to forgive. It's God's business to be God, to be truly good, even around creatures that are mixed up and fallen and confused. God, in his extraordinary kindness and love, does in fact extend forgiveness through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's not a requisite of God. His nature is not merely of patience. Because if God were only patient, there would be no difference between his patience and indifference. But if you've ever been seriously wronged, you'll know how unsatisfying that would be were God to be so indifferent to your suffering, to your pain. And what's true for you is true of everyone on the planet that's ever lived. If you're here and you're not a believer and you feel beleaguered by such a powerful God as we Christians profess to believe in, such a, a sovereign God allowing things like the terrible shooting in New Zealand, or, or the crash in Ethiopia, or, or even the tornadoes in Alabama, and you wonder, why, why doesn't he end this world now? Why, why does he let this continue? I do not have a complete answer for you. But the Bible does tell us that one true answer to that question is that God is being patient with you. God is giving you more time to repent. What was it Jesus said to those who were asking about some people who just died in a tragic accident, a big tower at Siloam collapsed, many people were killed? Jesus turns to them and he says to the people asking him, Why? Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or you think of 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But here in our passage, back in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, we see that in both chapter 2 and in chapter 3, God sees the Amorites living out their opposition to him by opposing his people. You look in chapter 2, verse 30. But Sihon, the king of Heshbon, would not let us pass by him, for the Lord your God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate, that he might give him into your hand as he is this day. And then skip down to verse 32. Then Sihon came out against us, he and all his people, to battle at Jahan's. Well, again, Sion may have come out against the Israelites, but his aim was opposition ultimately to God. What does that language of God making Sihon's heart obstinate or unyielding make you think of? It sounds like what God did with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. If you look back through Exodus, the first 14 chapters, you'll find about 10 instances of Pharaoh's heart being hardened. You can go back and find the exact number yourself. But here we see an indisputable example of the Bible's presentation of God as sovereign. God clearly controls moral evil as he hardened Sion's heart here. Or you can look at God's control of the heart in Romans 9. In his sovereign decrees of election and rejection. Among the many questions and observations we could mention about this idea of the sovereignty of God, and I'm happy to listen to them at the door and probably answer very few of them, uh, I do want to point out one implication that we shouldn't consider. That is the utter hopelessness of our task in evangelism if God is not so sovereign over the human heart. Friends, there are reasons that we pray for our non-Christian friends and family. There are reasons that we share the gospel with people who seem uninterested, There are reasons people like you and me have ended up believing the gospel. And it's not necessarily the artfulness of the person who shared it with us or what a good job they did, though sometimes that happens. No, it's because there's a sovereign God who, just like he did with Peter, who wasn't understanding when he was following Jesus himself. God enlightens him by his Holy Spirit. He gives him a knowledge of the truth and understanding that's what God does. That's why, friend, if you're wondering what you should do, pray. If you're wondering about a family member or a friend, pray for them. Ask God and share the gospel, the good news, with them. Back to our account here. What was the result of Sihon's stubborn resolve? Well, we see it in verse 32. Sihon and all his people came out to battle. There at Jahaz, this place east of the Dead Sea, you could say the conquest really begin. And then in the second half of chapter 3, verse 1, we see a similar statement about the northern Amorite king Og, where we see that Og and all his people came out to battle at Edri. That's about 30 miles east of the Sea of Galilee, about 60 miles south of Damascus. And this might be as good a time as any for me to mention that detail down in verse 11 of chapter 3, because I'm sure I'll get asked about it. If you look down there for a moment, chapter 3, verse 11. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Raphim. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not at Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit. Rabbah of the Ammonites is today known as Ammon, 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 Jordan. It's the capital of Jordan. And there, in that ancient city, there was uh, a monument to this king. Uh, Perhaps he had had it made before he died, very much like the pyramids in Egypt. It was a large monument, and if his remains were to reside in it, then we can assume that the dimensions of the monument say something about the size of the king. Uh, bed was probably just being used as an idiom, you know, a euphemism, uh, like a sleeping place would be for a cemetery in some languages. Well, bed for a sarcophagus or coffin or funerary monument. So there would be this monument to this giant og. And why would, be, why would Moses be pointing this out? Well, friends, this is just more evidence of the greatness of the opposition to God and His people that God was fully able to overcome. Unlike what their parents had assumed, the greatness of the opposition was absolutely, completely, and utterly irrelevant to God. God's judgment had now come initially in the form of these, their human executioners. Here, in His judgment, God gave them over. They were devoted to destruction. Look again at chapter 2, verse 33. And the Lord our God gave him over to us, and we defeated him and his sons and all his people. So God gave Sion over because God is the protector of his people. And Sion was as foolish as Pharaoh was to oppose God's people with his armies and as effective. And in verse 34, we come to a harrowing statement. And we captured all his cities at that time and devoted to destruction every city, men, women, and children. We left no survivors. Friends, this is a challenging statement when we read it. Uh, some scholars, I think, treat this entirely wrongly. People in the, in the, the blog world have been celebrating Robert Alter's new volumes on the Hebrew Bible. He, he, he treats this terribly. He calls this a brutal act. This is being used to try to justify a brutal act. He, he may be a good poet or literary scholar. He's, he's no, uh, under, no one who understands the God of the Bible. Friends, what God is doing here, this, this is not some later justification of something that they're now embarrassed by, looking back. No, What someone who is unfamiliar with the Bible and its teaching may hear in this, I understand, may not be too far from some of the tragic headlines of our own day about mass shootings or even ethnic cleansing. But that's not what's going on here. To begin with, as Christians, we have to consider that what the Bible teaches us about human nature and about original sin is that guilt and sin are what we have all inherited from our first parents. This guilt the Amorites had compounded in their own lives and decisions. So God declared them, and the word in the Hebrew is harem. It's a word for being under God's special judgment. uh, Devoted to him entirely, exhausted of his mercy. They had enjoyed years, many of them decades, of his mercy living in his creation. But now they were placed off limits for anything other than God's judgment of them. Now, just to be clear, in the New Testament and today, God's people, the church, do not have this role. Ever. We fight our battles with the weapons of the Spirit. We read in 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to Christ. Friends, physical Force of arms wouldn't enable us to convert a single person anyway. We we don't need that for what the Lord has called us to do. The Lord has called us to share a message of love and forgiveness, not something that we can help by coercive force. What God was doing then, in these days, through this invading army was both executing a long-deserved, long-delayed judgment on those who practiced religious prostitution, the sacrifice of children as part of the worship of Molech, and at the same time he was protecting his own people from ruinous idolatry as they would be seduced and join them in their false worship. For more on the sins of the time of the people, you can read the end of Leviticus chapter 18. The Israelites were not intrinsically morally superior. All of us, by nature, are fallen. And time would tragically show that they were just as open to destructive corruption and to leaving their own sins crying out for God's judgment as God had so graphically warned them about at the end of Numbers chapter 33. No, friends, this was not fundamentally a military or a vengeful act of personal motivation. Rather, God himself was directing this as a statement of his own character and his own opposition to all that is not good. The whole conquest of the promised land was a unique bringing forward in history of God's final judgment being depicted. We think of the work of Christ when He returns. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse twenty-four. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he, Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The closest thing I can think of uh, to this preview of God's judgment in this sense is at the very cross of Christ, where Christ takes on final judgment for his people. But these sufferings of the Amorites were deserved and they were in no way substitutionary for others. They were in no way saving in effect. And the purpose is nothing that any other people or nation can appropriate because God was uniquely preparing the nation of Israel to be the nation into which he would send his incarnate son. Once that happens in the ministry of Jesus, There is no longer any nation so uniquely positioned among other nations that they can ever use such language as this or such claims as this for their national claims or ethnic claims against another ethnic group or against another nation, not even the nation of Israel. And so God's patience seen in Genesis 15 and even here up in Deuteronomy 2 verse 26 where the Israelites treat the Sion. His patience is done. And we read in chapter 2, verse 36, from Eroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the city that is in the valley, as far as Gilead, there was not a city too high for us. The Lord our God gave all into our hands. No city was so high or fortified that they couldn't take it, despite what their parents had said. The story of Og, or uh, of Sihon, in chapter 2, is then largely repeated in this story of Og in chapter 3 the experience is similar with the northern amorites you look chapter 3 verse 3 so the lord our god gave into our hand og also the king of bashan and all his people and we struck him down until he had no survivor left and then all of this area up there between modern jordan and syria is taken look at chapter 3 verse 4 we took all his cities at that time there was not a city that we did not take from them 60 cities The whole region of Argob, the kingdom of Og and Bashan. And you'll notice down in verse 5, they're described also as fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. Great beams of wood dropping in carved walls of stone, effectively locking shut city gates to fortify them. But friends, all of that great strength was to no avail. We read in chapter 5, all these cities fortified with high walls, gates, and bars. Besides many unwalled villages, all of them were taken. Of course, Moses is emphasizing that because of the excuse the parents had used a generation earlier. They couldn't go into Canaan because the cities were like this. And Moses is showing the utter irrelevance of human strength to God's enacting his own sovereign will. And then in verse 6, we read the same language about Og that had been used about Sihon. And we devoted them to destruction as we did to Sihon, the king of Heshbon, devoting to destruction every city, men, women, and children. And the whole vast area was taken. Look there in chapter 3, verse 8. So we took the land at that time out of the hand of the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. The Sidonians call Hermon Syrian, while the Amorites call it Sinir. All the cities of the Tableland, and all Gilead and all Bashan, as far as Salakah and Edrai, cities of the kingdom of Og and Bashan. Friends, if they had realized that from their sinful rejection of God, such terrible consequences would come, would they still have given themselves to sacrificing their babies to Moloch and to all manner of sexual immoralities? How foolish does sin always appear in the light of its consequences? How valuable a word to us from the future, from a reliable God, is about His evaluation of our actions, of our lives. Pray for us as a church that we would encourage each other to hear the Word of God, to hear it deep in our souls, to war against our own sins. Pray that God accomplishes good purposes in us. That he defeat the sin that wages war against our souls. And that we rejoice in his good and right judgment that he has caused to fall upon Jesus Christ for our soul's sake. Which brings us to my third point, and that's mercy. We have to notice the mercy that we see glimpses of even in this dark passage we see God's mercy here in countless ways. Let me simply draw your attention to three. We see his mercy number one in chapter 2, verse 37. Look at it with me. Chapter 2, verse 37. Only to the land of the sons of Ammon you, will, you did not draw near, that is, to all the banks of the river Jabbok and the cities of the hill country, wherever the Lord our God has forbidden us. We talked about this in the last sermon in Deuteronomy. God spared the Ammonites, not Amorites, the Ammonites. The Ammonites because they were descendants of Lot. God is kind to spare those who, like the Amorites, were also sinners by birth, but whom God had given the people at least a special temporary reprieve to that they had not themselves earned. God's mercies always come freely and unrequired from his hand. And in this, so far, was God from training his people to be vengeful and bloodthirsty. He was training them instead to show undeserved mercy and kindness to others, to reflect his character even in the way they bypassed and protected the Ammonites. Second, we see God's mercy in his provision for the people, in his provision for the people. For a generation, God had been providing this nomad nation with sufficient rations to live on. Now, as they came into the land where three of their tribes would settle, he allowed them to take the livestock as plunder for their own supply. We see that in chapter 2, verse 35, and then over in chapter 3, verse 7. And then number three, thirdly, we see God's remarkable patience with his sinful people. The golden calf idol that they had made and worshipped, they had done so at the very time that Moses was being given the Ten Commandments by God. And yet, friends, even then, even then, God allowed them to continue on as his people. Their parents' generation had witnessed the wonders of the Exodus. And while they themselves had to forfeit their lives, it was only after a normal span of years... And then their children would still get to inherit the land. even in the way he judged his people for squandering the wonderful mercies of the exodus, God was showing patience and mercy to his people. My friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to realize that God has provided a restored relationship with himself through Christ for all who will trust in him. And he has even in his mercy sent you messengers to tell you about this, like your Christian friend who told you about this meeting or brought you here with them, or like me who's saying this to you right now that you're listening to. We're all signs of God's mercy to you? Will you repent? Will you trust in Christ? Friend, if you want to know more of what that would mean in your own life, talk to any, us, any one of us at the doors on the way out afterwards. There's no conversation we'd rather have than with you about that. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My Christian friend, reflecting on God's mercy in this passage, should considering His power and His sovereignty, we see a passage like this is just dripping with God's mercy. Study to know more and to believe more in the God who rules nations, like we see in this passage. This is the God who will command our trust. And this is the God in whom we may rest securely. Theology fuels praise. And so we always have a prayer of praise in our Sunday morning time together concentrating on some aspect of God's person or character and praising Him for it, like His mercy. Even in a passage like this, do not fail to notice God's mercy. We should conclude. The beginning of the conquest is significant. Beginnings in our lives can be significant things. We can see what things are going to be like as we see their first seeds. So you think of our own lives as Christians. We've begun as sinners who are in complete dependence on God's mercy. That's how we began our Christian lives. And friends, that's how we will have to go on. There is no other way than by your and my being completely dependent on God's mercy. We never learn Christianity so well that our Heavenly Father can kind of take His hands off our bicycle of faith and just let us go. No, He's forever holding us, helping us to trust in Him. Really, this whole thing is mercy. You realize that we are all under God's cherem, His good and righteous condemnation of us for our sins. I wonder if it's impossible for us as sinners to as it were, empathize with a perfectly good God. But I would that we could. you realize he has never, never, never done us or anyone else wrong? Never. Not once. There is no circumstance or puzzling providence or dark detail of your life about which God will blush as He explains to you one day what He was doing. God is only good. And He has always been good in His actions towards us. Friends, as just some small evidence of this, I give you every goodness of God He has ever done to you. See them line up in front of you, everyone that you have known. How have you thanked him for them? How have you reflected on them and and relished them and gossiped about them to other people? About how good God is being to you in this or that because of them? How have you stewarded his goodnesses to you? My Christian brothers and sisters, isn't this compounded all the more by the fact that you and I have earned None of these goodnesses. We have deserved to be devoted to destruction by our sins against an only good God. And yet how has he responded to us in this amazing love? Perhaps you're feeling that God is the unfair, great, unmoved mover in all of this. My friend, nothing could be further from the truth. One of the reflections that helped me so much when I was an agnostic and was struggling with the problem of evil and very much focused on that was that the God of the Bible had actually taken on suffering that he did not have to undertake merely out of his love for us. How was it the World War I poet described Christ? Not a God has scars but thee. Some of you will know the poetry of Edward Shilito. He wrote in World War I, The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is thy balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut thou draw us near, only reveal those hands that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And Not a god has wounds, but thou alone. Why did he have those scars? Because God, in his great mercy, has saved us in Christ. Because Christ has become harem, devoted to destruction for us in our place. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrow. Will you believe this? Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would in your mercy clear the confusion from our minds about you and about us. Teach us of our sin and of your goodness. Teach us how utterly trustworthy you are. Give the gifts of repentance and faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.